Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio podcast, session number 10. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of freelance recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Well, now, hey there, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. We, of course, are on session number 10 today, a little milestone that's quite cool. Of course, the show is brought to you by our friends over at GearSluts. So where are we at? At this point, we are post-NAM 2015. So I hope all of you enjoyed yourself at NAM. I, of course, did not go this year. I rarely go because my oldest son's birthday falls in that time period. So, of course, I stayed in the Bay Area to celebrate uh, my oldest son's ninth birthday. We had a fantastic time. Fortunately, I can catch up and get debriefed, essentially, on what happened at NAM uh, via the forum at Gear Sluts. Of course, I miss all of the social interaction and miss seeing friends that I truly enjoy hanging out with. What I can do is go over to GearSluts and check out what is new as far as releases of equipment. A couple things caught my attention. Let's see, Pro Tools 12. Yes, that is a major topic of discussion. Of course, I find people in the uh, pro audio world sometimes not very happy about change. So lots of people complaining that, oh my God, we're already going to Pro Tools 12. What happened to Pro Tools 11? I don't know. I'm a, I'm a glasses half full kind of person. So while I am scratching my head, primarily because I'm still on Pro Tools 10 and, and slowly working my way to 11, and here we are at 12, I'm, I'm one who typically stays behind a couple versions anyway. So I'm not really concerned. And one of the features that I understand that Pro Tools 12 will incorporate is a subscription-based model, which, you know, if you pay attention to other uh, softwares in other industries, they're going that same way. And, you know, there's basically always, in in those situations, there's the subscribe and be up to date on the latest and the greatest, or there's the buy it outright and, you know, stick with the version you have and pay when you want to upgrade. So that's that's a interesting uh, discussion that's going on right now, The this, this discussion of Pro Tools 12. Something that really caught my attention was the fact that, I don't know if you guys caught this, but Radar is now putting out a product called the um, Radar Studio, which allows uh, essentially a radar to host a DAW. If you're not familiar with Radar, go check out um, IZ Technology. That's the people that, uh, that do it. But this new box apparently is essentially um, a standalone box that has ins and outs and it's got a powerful computer inside and it's got a built-in screen and the ability to, of course, hook up other peripherals to it. Of course, you know, screens and mice and all that. But it can host uh, any DAW. We don't have time to go into it on the show today, but, you know, it is an interesting concept, a all-in-one box, standalone box that can run a DAW you know, separate from, you know, a Mac or a PC. Although essentially this is a, a Windows-based setup. I think it's a Windows 8 and they've done a lot of tweaking to it to make it super stable and, and all that. So be sure and check that out. And, you know, if you feel like uh, throwing me your opinion, 
of course, always emails, emails great, Matt at Working Class Audio. Be curious to hear if anybody has any, you know, eye-popping revelations or, or epiphanies about the whole thing. But And if you just want to get in on the discussion, of course, head on over to Gear Sluts and you can check out the uh, all the press releases from NAM 2015. Let's see. I just got through watching um, a Pensado's Place, the episode with Gavin Lurson, uh, mastering engineer. Pensado's Place is great anyway. Uh, Dave and Herb are, are doing a fantastic job, as, as I talked about with Andrew Sheps uh, in our last episode. But in watching this show, I, I just really was struck by, I guess what's what I like is their discussion about um, mentorship. You know, whether you're, whether you're a guy like me with 20 years, uh, you could still learn. And you should be still learning. And don't assume that you know everything. I certainly don't. And uh, hell, that's why I have the show is, is to ask a lot of questions of things. Either I understand and I want a different perspective or things I just don't understand. But that also means meeting with people who have less experience than you and maybe guiding them in the right direction, you know, how to, how to navigate our world here and, um, Hopefully, a working class audio podcast can can help in that. Uh, so please send them send them this way and tell them to listen. A lot of different perspectives. Don't like to be too dogmatic about one particular way of doing things or one thought process. We all do things differently, and I think that each person can bring uh, you know valuable insight with their techniques. So. Um, if you do get a chance, though, I, I encourage you to watch that uh, episode of Pensado's Place with Gavin Larson. It's a, it's a really good episode, i, I got to say. That's it. My guest today is Scott Evans. Of course, he's a recording engineer, but he also plays guitar in a band called Kowloon Walled City. And he's also a regular contributor to Tape Op. He's got a, um, a personal studio that he uses to work with his clients uh, called Anti-Sleep in Oakland. It's housed in the same building as Sharkbite Studios. And uh, Sharkbite, of course, is a place I do a lot of work out of. So uh, today's interview takes place in Anti-Sleep. Scott was like, hey, if, you know, if I'm going to be on the show, why don't you just come down to my place and we'll set up a couple mics and skip the whole Skype interview thing, which I think is great. All right, so let's get to our interview with Mr. Scott Evans here, and uh, thanks for listening. We're here in Scott's room. It's called Anti-Sleep Audio. It's housed in the same building as Sharkbite Studios. And it's down the hall, a control room, and, and a live room. A miniature live room. A miniature live room. And it's, it's a cool room. What generation of Neotech console is that? So this is very recent. This is an Elan 2 tabletop, which is the same as an Elan 2, just without the patch bay and the frame. And I think it's about five years old. Uh, the guy I bought it from had commissioned it from Neotech about five years ago, used it lightly. And then when he sold it to me, he said, I never want to record anything again. Really? <laughs> yeah. And uh, so he freighted it all the way across the country. And there it is. Who ended up paying the freight? Me. Ah, but you got a really slamming deal on it. I, I think I got a good deal on it. I mean, he was having trouble selling it, I think, because it's smallish and you could spend about the same money and get a fairly big vintage Neotech. I looked at some of those too. You know, there's some 36 input full, proper, large format consoles out there, definitely all sub $10,000 and some far sub that they need a lot more work often and a lot more upkeep just because they're older. 
So I think that was why he was having trouble selling it. Anyway, I was, I was really worried about freighting it. I haven't freighted a lot of expensive gear ac across the country. And I was really worried that, you know, the crate would show up with a forklift hole in the side of it or whatever. And I, I ended up using rocket cargo. And when I talked to the the rep who was helping me and I explained that exact thing and her soothing answer to me was, oh, yeah, that happens. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, all right. But they, they were awesome. They were super great. So in the future, would you recommend Rocket for... Oh, absolutely. They were not the cheapest thing I got, but they they deal with high value, fragile shit all the time. That mm -hmm. is their thing. And we just, we had a great experience. The place we went to pick it up, uh, Rocket does like all Metallica stuff. They do, you know, they had like all the for school benefit stuff was all crated up to go somewhere else. You know, I mean, that's like the kind of thing they do. Huh. So yeah, they were fantastic. I think one of the, the bitches about shipping it was that the poor guy who shipped it had to build a crate. He really wanted to sell it locally, but he wasn't able to do that. The crate he built was incredible. I mean, the crate must've weighed 200 pounds on its own. It was just- He, he built a crate on his own? Yeah, he had some buddies come over. He sent me some photos of them doing it. And I mean, crates, that's what they do. They custom build crates for all kinds of shipping purposes. There's no standard crate because it's got to fit the, the stuff that's being shipped. It's just got to fit on a pallet or have a pallet attached to it. I see a pair of Aratones up there over the Atom speakers. Do you use those? I use them a lot. I have a real problem with mixing too loud. You know, I, I do a lot of loud music. It's always easier for me if I feel it, you know, but that has all kinds of issues in your end result. You just torture your ears really quickly. So I... One of my struggles over the last few years is I've been fighting really hard to stick to about 85 dB, switch the R-tones a lot to sort of shock my ears, remind me what's what, do a lot of A-being. If it sounds decent on them, as they say, you're probably doing okay. Let's talk about what kind of music you work on, because my perception is that you work with a lot of metal bands. I do, I think, a lot of sort of more hardcore-derived, I mean, it's still heavy, and down-tuned stuff. I don't know. I don't know how to categorize what I do. It's it's heavy, but it's not often heavy metal, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of subgenre stuff that happens these days. Do you try to stick to that kind of music exclusively, or, or does it just naturally gravitate, those bands gravitate towards you because of your reputation with that music? I'm in this band called Kowloon Wild City. It's also that kind of heavy stuff, and I think that's one of my I don't know how to say this without sounding slimy or whatever, but I guess it's sort of a calling card since I record all of our records. So specializing, I think, I don't know, that was a reasonably good decision, and I've been trying to mostly stick to that. Recently, I've had a chance to do a couple poppier things, and it's been super fun. Maybe at this point, you know, I don't need to be quite so single-minded. Do you think that when you do, when you record music that you're really close to like that, do you think it's possibly easier to do, let's say, more poppy-like music because you're not as attached and you're a little more possibly open, whereas maybe the music you play and the music you record, there's maybe unspoken rules or unspoken kind of taboos of, oh, no, we don't want to do that because that's too, too much of, you know, this thing and that's not acceptable in this type of music. I know what you're saying. I don't, I don't know how much I experience that. I, one thing that I think I have noticed in the couple, I mean, it's just the last few months that I've done these non-heavy things is that there are fewer rules, I think, in general. Mm -hmm. One of the, the pretty consistent traits about heavy music is tons of very distorted guitars. 
And so that fills up tons of arrangement space and sonic space. Yeah. And if you take that out, you can do all kinds of stuff. You know, you can be a lot more creative in your production. It's not just a question of like, which thing am I going to distort the most? Um, <laughs> although it can be. If you go listen to a PJ Harvey song where it's like a, just a couple, like a jangly guitar and some drums and really distorted vocals, you're like, whoa, listen to that vocal. It's sick. Uh, whereas if you do that in a heavy thing, it's like, yes, that is another distorted sound amongst all the other distorted sounds. So it's actually been really fun to do these cleaner, I guess, or more open arrangements where the production decisions stand out more. And, hmm. you know, there, I don't know, there's more leeway for, for doing things with, with production. It's not just make everything louder than everything else. And I would assume that your perspective with, you know, coming from, let's just say heavy music into the pop world, you've got a, a much different perspective, obviously, and maybe a lot different ideas that could yield something a little more unique on the, for the outcome. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I, you definitely have to undo a little bit of your tendencies, your rock thinking, you know, like, okay, we're going to make the kick drum super, super loud. And we're going to do these really roomy drums or, you know, whatever, like, there are a bunch of sort of go-to things that you get good at doing. You know, like this, this last thing I did that it's a good friend of mine's project. They're trying to do like an old cars thing. Mm. And that's a pretty high bar to start with, right? Like production wise, but that's been super fun and educational. And, uh, and I got to undo a lot of the stuff. Like the drums don't need to be the loudest thing. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, the arrangement needs to, everything needs to make room for everything else. You listen to those old Cars records and everyone gets out of everyone else's way. I want to talk about how this studio came into into being, first of all. So that we're for the listener, we're, we're in this building that uh, has a couple other studios in it. And the primary one being Sharkbite Studios that both Scott and I do work out of. But Scott and Ryan, the owner, came up with an agreement. You rent this space. Yeah. Without getting into the financial details that are private between you and Ryan on this deal, can you give us the general arrangement? Like, who paid? F- well, I, I pay him money every month. Well, true. And he, he yeah. lets me. And he lets you stay. Lets me have a key. How generous of yeah, him. Yeah, that's kind of the deal. But as far as. I paid for the build out. You paid for the build out. I pay, well, yeah, I paid for the build out. Ryan and his sort of partner in crime here, Rob Jackson, they did most of the build out and they didn't take a ton of money for it themselves. Uh, they did get paid, but they did, you know, a lot of the work, it was just to get a tenant in where the tenant was me and the tenant was funding the build out. You know, my intent was definitely, and Ryan knew this, was to be here for a while to amortize that cost over time. If I moved out after a year, it would be pretty expensive. Yeah. You guys did a lot of build out of broken radio, right? Yeah. Yeah, we did. And that's the kind of thing that once it's done, it's, it's not of much value to the next tenant even if they're going to be a studio it's hard to sell that to someone it is because if they don't like what you did and in the case of broken radios transitioned back to coast with tom and everybody that's in control over it now tom came in and completely gutted what i had done so wow yeah yeah see exactly all right so ryan ryan and uh rob did the build out i remember when they were here like working and yeah, it took months. They had done two or three rooms in this hall already. Uh, they built what is now Castle Ultimate across the hall. They did a shark bite mix room. There was another shark bite mix room that now has been repurposed into part of Ultimate. So they were pretty solid on the build out part. 
you can see the ceiling is sloped and the walls splay and uh, the floor is sort of semi-floated because there are a number of, there's a mastering studio next door and a number of other studios who share space. Uh, so the main concern is being able to do loud stuff and not, you know, ruin everyone else's day next door and across the hall. That worked out great. I mean, it was just, it was one of those things where I think if we, if I had had a, just a, a regular contractor doing the build out, it would have been a clusterfuck because they don't understand the stuff that's required for soundproofing. That worked out because, I mean, essentially you have the guy in charge of the, of the building doing your build out and that works out pretty well. Yep. Very, I think, unusual and fortunate situation. And it's yours. I mean, do you let other people come in and use your space or? Not much. Uh, part, partly that's because Ryan and I have a handshake agreement, at least that I'm not going to undercut Shark Bites business. Okay. Right. I mean, they're. A little bit of a unspoken non-compete yeah which i think is totally reasonable uh one of the main reasons i got the space was so that i it was my space right i can leave things set up and you know given my day job and all this stuff it's not i'm not just in here working on a project till it's done sometimes i need to leave stuff set up and come back next week or whatever so that's easy to do when it's your own space whereas if it was always booked i would have to be constant you know it would be more like a general purpose studio which is just a much different situation. Let's talk about your day job for a minute and how that works in context of, of, of this. You work for Adobe. I do. Uh, what do you do? My title is senior computer scientist. I'm a programmer. And what's your degree in? Computer science. Okay. So I've, I've been a programmer, you know, professionally since I graduated college when I was 20. Okay. Uh, that's what I've always done. You wouldn't be able to do this, do you feel, without your day job, right? I think the answer to that is complicated. Were I younger and childless, you know, who knows? Because uh, in in that situation, you can do all kinds of stuff. You know, you can sacrifice all kinds of personal comforts mm -hmm. if this is a thing you really want to do. I'm not willing to drag my family along for that now. I'm sorry, kid, you have to, you know. Sleep in the ISO booth. Yeah, you know, because dad wants to record sludge metal. Like... I feel like this strikes a pretty decent balance in that I get to do this thing that is really important to me. I can still provide for my kids. Your wife works for Adobe as well, doesn't she? She does. So we're able to, you know, live in an expensive area like the Bay Area and feed our kids. And, you know, a kid needs braces or whatever. We can do that. We have, as things go, very good health care. Yeah. You know, all this stuff, right? You know, I have tons of friends who are independent producers and engineers and musicians you know, their healthcare situation is really difficult. And that's, that's no joke. I mean, when you're 22, it's no big deal often unless you get cancer or something. But as you get older, I don't know. And with kids especially, it strikes a pretty reasonable balance, I think, in that I'm able to do this. And my goal for the studio has been, since I moved into this space and really since I've been doing audio over the last few years, that the deal I kind of struck with my wife is that and this is my proposal to her was like, yeah. hey, I'm going to break even on this. I'm not looking to go further and further into the whole, I've been able to do that. Um, it requires that I'm here a lot. That's mm -hmm. the trade-off, you know, is that I don't sit at home and watch TV every night or anything. I come over here and work, you know, it's a second job, but that's worth it to me because it's important. How do you strike the balance of like taking care of your clients in the way that you see fit and balancing that with your job and your family? And the because each has its own unique set of responsibilities, how do you blend those without 
upsetting the apple cart. Yeah, and the, there's a fourth one in play, uh, which is the band I'm in. You know, we tour a little bit. We work hard enough on writing new music. You know, we're getting ready to do a new record, all this stuff, right? I think the main way that we balance that stuff is my wife and I, we like spending time together, but we're also pretty independent. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're totally fine and have always been totally fine with taking the kids by ourselves so the other adult can go do something. Uh, my wife skated roller derby for a number of years right after we moved to the Bay Area. And that's when our kids were super young. And I was, so there I was at home, you know, with a one-year-old or whatever, or an eight-month-old while she was skating in derby tournaments, you know, vice versa. Now it's a lot easier now that the kids are older. Uh, but, you know, if I need to disappear for four days to go do a tracking session, everyone's cool with that. You know, it's not like a crisis. My wife and I are kind of interchangeable at home as far as being able to get the kids ready for school or, I don't know, do any of the sort of normal day-to-day -day shit that you have to do to have kids and have a house. Mm -hmm. uh, either of us can do any of that stuff. I think that's the main thing. It's a good tag team situation. Yeah, yeah. It's. I think that's the main thing that makes any of this viable. It still feels pretty tenuous to me. I mean, our family is healthy right now. My wife and I have stable jobs right now. One or two of these things went sideways. It would be much, much less viable. But for now, that's the way that we do it. You and I'm and I'm just here a lot. Like I said, you know, I'll put the, I'll put my kids to bed at eight thirty or nine or whatever, and I'll come over here. And I'll work for three or four hours. Which is nice because you're, you're close by. I am. Yeah. Uh, it still means, you know, from 9 to 1 a.m. or something, I'm working again. And I've got to still be super focused and listen very carefully and all this stuff. It, it's just, it's a second job, right? My, yeah. I mean, my outside view of, of, of that approach is that the time you do spend in the studio is precious to you. Uh, and in fact, the time you spend in any of those situations, you probably take great care in each of those things. And you're not there to goof off. You're there to actually do work or take care of your kids and do what each of those things really needs uh, to make them work properly. I, that's a nice way of putting it. I, I, I realized recently that for a long time, I've had lots of people who they said they felt like music was their escape. You know, that's a pretty common thing. I never felt that way. Mm. Uh it was just something I love doing. However, in the last few years, as my schedule, I mean, you know, like when you wanted me to, to have me on your podcast, I looked at my calendar. And I just want to throw up. I mean, it's just like, so given that that's kind of the normal day to day these days, studio time, sessions, you know, short tours, whatever, they really are precious. It's mm -hmm. like they, they are an escape uh, because it's this it's this opportunity where hopefully you get to do nothing else, right? You just turn everything off and you focus super hard on this thing you love doing and this place you love being. And, uh, I, I think that's totally true. I, every day that I get to do a session here or at shark bite, I am just absolutely thrilled about it. It's oh, just yeah. the greatest thing ever. You know? I would assume that the time you spend with your kids, it's almost kind of like your, um, uh, monotasking as opposed to multitasking. It's like, you're there with your kids, you do the kid thing. You're there at studio, you do the studio thing. Yeah. Or am I, I projecting? Uh, <laughs> are you trying to make me feel bad? God. No, no, I'm I just, just, I'm just, just saying. Just look that, at my phone once in a while, Matt. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> Again, as kids get older, 
that stuff all gets more segmented out. There's things they want to do by themselves. That's, you know, kid stuff and they don't need a, they don't need their parent around anymore. So they, in, in always that time that you, when you do get time together to go do some stuff, that's, you know, just you and them, it is nice. And hopefully you can turn everything else off. So let's talk about when you are working. I want to talk about a little bit about your workflow Right now, I want to talk about mixing because only because I'm sitting here staring at this Neotech and I'm wondering. You're, you're probably wondering the same things I wonder when I look at that Neotech. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting because the Andrew Sheps podcast uh, revealed, you know, that here's a guy who makes what I have categorized as big boy, big girl records, you know. Real deal stuff, yes. You know, commercially competitive stuff that, you know, goes up for Grammys and such. He's got three records that are up for Grammys. Uh, this year that were all mixed in the box. Uh, but this is a guy who's got a studio chock full of outboard gear and two Neve consoles, and he has now decided to mix in the box. Yet at the same time, to contrast that, Vance Powell and Steve Silverstein, conversations with those guys, they love the analog workflow. Whether they're working in Pro Tools or not, they like mixing through a console. Where are you at with that for your workflow? Well, I, many years ago, had analog-ish studios, nothing super fancy, like nothing like Android or anything, right? But a decent-sized spec console for a while and a, a decent-sized Allen and Heath before that and, you know, a smattering of sort of mid-grade outboard. I got my first UAD-1 a million years ago. I turned on the 1176 and I said, holy shit, like, this sounds better than any, you know, than any of the analog gear that I have. Uh, because the analog gear that I had wasn't great, I think. And that was that. I sort of started selling stuff and moved into the box. And so I've been doing that for a long time. I think I've gotten pretty good at it. If you look at the last, I don't know, 20 records or whatever I've mixed, 100% in the box. Mm -hmm. Often tracking with very little outboard on the way in also. You know, I just do a lot of stuff at mix time. I have a few friends who are more out-of-the-box guys, and, you know, whenever I talk to them, I feel that shame that I'm not doing the real thing or that I'm selling my Sonic short or that mixes would come together faster or, you know, all that bullshit that you read on Gear Sluts or whatever. <laughs> uh, it's a very complicated mental battle because I think logically I know that most of that stuff is bullshit. You know, I know that difficult audio work is difficult in a lot of cases, but emotionally you can't help but be like, oh man, if I just had two Neve EQs, everything would just come together, right? Horseshit. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, years and years of in the box stuff has worked great. Like I said, my schedule, it's very rare. It's very rare that I do attended mix sessions. It's very, very rare that we wrap mix sessions, you know, the day of. Everyone wants recalls. Everyone wants to go listen in their car or on their headphones or, you know, wherever they want to listen and then and then talk about revisions. And that's great. In fact, you know, there, there's lots of good about that. We're not working on seven month recording schedules anymore, right? We're working on very compressed schedules. So that is a great way to make up for the fact that you don't have seven months to work on a record. You get to go listen to it at home and mm -hmm. think about it. Cool. Uh, so why did I buy this console? <laughs> so why the fuck? Well, yeah. Uh, I don't know. It was an experiment. I, I figured it would be fun to try doing some, I spent, you know, I spent a long time talking to friends who, Eli Cruz, yeah, awesome dude, uh, Sanford Parker, also an awesome guy, I interviewed him for Tape Hop years ago, 
great engineer. My friend Kurt Ballou, who uh, I also interviewed for Tabop, fantastic engineer. Just a, a bunch of people talking about summing. And I have lots of thoughts about the advent of analog summers and all this stuff. But that, you know, basically is me being like, this is bullshit, man. This is all based on a faulty premise. Nevertheless, people like Eli, people like Sanford, they're like, yeah, man, I don't know what it is, but it's just made my life easier. And so I spent a lot of time just like having these conversations, waiting to like have, you know, the light in the sky open up and tell me what I should do or something. And finally, I was like, man, I'm going to, I'm going to buy a summer and like maybe a, a, like a nice two bus chain. Mm -hmm. I'm going to work that way for a while and just see if anything changes. And somehow in thinking that through, I realized, man, for similar money, I could get an, a small console. and A more uh, full-featured item. Yeah, which also will have an analog summing path, but, you know, will let you uh, move faders if you want to, and you can track through it and all this other stuff. So that's how I ended up with this. That's my summing box. So far, I've only done one, you know, one of the things you also notice if you look here is that there's little to no outboard. You know, to properly mix for me, I need... I need probably six or eight compressors, and I want them after the EQ. So if I was going to do a hybrid thing where I compressed in the box, I wouldn't really be able to use the console's EQs and all this stuff. I don't know. So I'm still trying to figure that out. I've done a couple mixes on the console. Uh, it's been fun as hell. I mean, the thing you said earlier about the workflow, it's 100% true, man. It's just it's emotionally satisfying to just put your hands down on that on those faders. I am really, really good at using computers. You've got a computer science background. Yeah. <laughs> you better be good. I'm a professional programmer, right? I'm 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 really very comfortable with computers. And it's still I mean, being able to just whack solo buttons right in front of you and grab a bunch of faders and turn three EQs at the same time and all this stuff. I couldn't believe after years and years and years of totally competent in the box work how nice that was. Now, that isn't to say it sounds better or worse or anything. And I think people often conflate these things. They say, oh, this gear is so much better. And they don't actually, you know, you, what you hear is that it sounds better. And they might actually make better sounding things with that gear. But it's not necessarily that the fairy dust in this piece of gear is different than the fairy dust in another piece of gear. It's that they work better on it. I felt that a lot in the couple of mixes I've done so far. I also looked at my patch bay. I was like, well, this is completely non-recallable. You know, like, so if I was going to send this off and then work on another record while I waited for mix feedback, I don't know how I'm going to do that yet. I'm still trying to figure that out. I did run stems in and sum them and, you know, inverted that, phase inverted it to test it against the original, like an internally summed version and see where I was at. It was shockingly close. So that's interesting, hmm. uh, you know, per the analog summing, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Uh, this console is super, it's known for being super clean and transparent. It's not like a full of mojo and color and all that shit. So it's not too surprising. And in a way, maybe that's good. You know, maybe I can get the workflow of mixing that way, but just run stems. Uh-huh. And, you know, and then we can do our revs from stems. I don't know if that's better or worse or what. I don't know, man. The last couple of years, I, I caught wind of, or maybe it was a video I watched of George Massenberg talking about going clean as you can on the way in so that you can colorize on the way out, uh, on the back end. I think it is important to commit to things. Hear things as you're working through tracking that are going to sound like your record's going to sound. If you can do that, it's a better world, right? Mm -hmm. Like, 
on the other hand, a lot of the sessions I do, we're, we're tracking, you know, I don't know, six or eight songs or whatever in three days. And so I would much rather get stuff up, play it safe with my tracks and have extra time for performances than dial in really perfect compressor settings for every song for, you know, the snare drum or something like that. Like mm -hmm. that, that's just, that's putting your energy in the wrong place, I think, because you can always do that stuff after. So, you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to strike all these balances. Uh, I think it's also like clients walk in, you see a console, it's a different thing. Yep. Why do you think that is? What, what is it about a console that strikes confidence in a client? I think it, and this is, this comes from a friend, Pat Dillett in New York via another friend, Greg Thompson in New York. There's something to walking into a place and saying, I couldn't do this at home. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, everyone, every time I bring a band into shark bite, they walk up to that 10 foot or eight foot or whatever it is, 40 input Trident. 1978 Trident. And they go, Holy fucking shit. Yeah. Like, and immediately they're putting it on Instagram and all this stuff. And it's like, and that is inspiring and says, I am in this place where this stuff happens. Now, it's not going to happen when you walk in here with a 16-channel Neotech. But it, the point is, it's something that's it's different than like a laptop. But but I walked in. I walked straight to it. I was just like, well, oh, yeah, a, let's talk about this. Yeah, you're a... But I'm a nerd. You're a nerd. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so as far as your experiments, have you done any mixes where you just do a manual mix in the board? Yes. I, so I did two songs with this band, Drunk Dad, from Portland. And their, I mean, their band is called Drunk Dad. Uh, Says it all. Yeah, they're they're awesome. They're like just sort of sloppy and aggressive and they're great. And it seemed like a perfect opportunity to do a console mix. Uh, and it was only two songs. I did all kinds of crazy shit to make it work. You know, I like borrowed a couple compressors and patched in stuff in weird ways. And I was like using delay pedals through reamps as like, you know, effect sends and. Uh, oh, you actually did an analog mix. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I, 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 in the end, I had far fewer compressors than I usually use. I had like none in the box, like one or two. And I had almost no EQ in the box because I mean, I do have lots of EQ on the console. Like I said, it was super fun. It sounded different than my normal mixes. And I don't think that had anything to do with the summing bus. I think it had everything to do with the way I got there. This actually translated to affecting your brain to work in a different way. And therefore the, pro the, the end result mix, is, this is partially responsible for that just from uh, you, Scott, being satisfied with like, hey, this is fun. Well, I think, it's, I, I think moreover, it was there is a set of limitations I had to deal with. I had far fewer compressors than normal. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't have, I, I was trying not to use, you know, like your typical betterizers, as I call them, you know, like the slate stuff or, oh, I'll put, you know, radiator across tracks for some grid or, you know, anything like that. I was trying not to do that stuff and let the console do more of the work and I don't know, you know, ride faders more and stuff than maybe I normally would. I had to do a bunch of weird creative stuff, you know, on the patch bay. I don't know. There was just a bunch of these weird restrictions, but they were fun. And it reminded me of, you know, 15 years ago when I just didn't have that much gear. The result was, I, I think a little more spacious and a little more, uh, I mean, it was compressed less probably is the reality of it. Right. Um, 
I didn't use a two bus compressor at all. I, I did have that borrowed C2, but it was like one of the only compressors I had and I didn't want to put it on the two bus, right? Like I, <laughs> I want to waste it on the two bus. You can compress your two bus later. But I think I ended up doing something really weird with that thing. Like I, I think I used it as like a drum smash compressor with its, you know, stun mode, the crush mode set and just blending that back in. Oh, and I was using like, you see that, that sure mm-hmm. cheapo sure mic pre down there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was like crushing the kick drum through that for a parallel kick drum you know, like crunchy distortos, just like barely blended in thing, like weird shit that I would never do normally. And that I've got kind of like rote ways of doing now in the box. And so that was fun and interesting. And yeah, I, you know, the result was I really had to use my ears. I don't know. It was cool. None of that has anything to do with the sum, the summing bus, right? At all. I mean, yes, I was using largely one type of EQ, which is the console EQ. So there's kind of a uniform sound. I guess. I don't know, right? I mean, sure. I I think the interesting thing was all the decisions that went up to the summing bus, not the summing itself. Now, (laughs) would that approach, like, would I be able to get away with doing an LP that way? Man, I don't know. I mean, it was like kind of a gonzo way of mixing Mm -hmm. compared to this very buttoned up, super recallable in the box thing. And if I was going to cover my ass by running stems, that's just no fun. (laughs) That's a lot of work. It's just shit work. And it takes a lot of time. And, you know, time is precious here for me. It's not like I just bill my client another day. Like, I don't want to spend another day doing that. Uh, And also, it's not foolproof. You can screw up your stems. Like, oh, whoops, I messed up. And there's guitar in both of these. And now when I put the stems back up, it's all screwed up or whatever. So, you know, if your client's super used to full, perfect recall, we just want the exact same mix, but like darker overheads or something like that. You, know, you, you can botch that pretty good. So could I get through a whole LP that way? And would it be worth it? I don't know. Hmm. I feel kind of lame saying that. I want to talk a little bit about the business, uh, your business practices with your clients, because you do have this day job. You're trying to break even and make sure you don't lose money. First of all, how do you get your clients uh, we we did touch on the fact that you have this band, of course, and yeah, some I mean, of I, your clients may come through there. Yeah, I so I play in an active band. Uh, we are out playing with other bands a lot, and I'm just in touch with lots of band people mm-hmm. you know, via the internet, who I'm sure all are sick to death of knowing that I do recording because it's like one of my favorite things to talk about and think about. You know, I don't need tons and tons of work. I can't support tons and tons of work given schedule constraints. I need to do a project or two a month. Sometimes it's more than that, sometimes it's less, but to be able to, you know, pay rent, pay for gear, pay for keeping stuff working. And I don't know that I could look back over the, this, I've had this room for like a, it's a little over a year now. I don't know that I could look back and say that there's been any consistent way. That cl- that's the scary part about this kind of work, right? Is there's... I mean, do people come to you word of mouth? Yeah, definitely. Okay. Um, and people uh, that our band has played with before and occasionally people I don't know at all. Yes, that definitely happens. Rarely, it's not entirely rarely, but I'll, I'll, we'll play with a band or I'll see a band, I'll go to a show and it'll just be awesome. And I'll, I'll mention, hey, I love your band. It would be super fun to record you. I know that that's, it can feel sleazy. I try not to be sleazy about it. I mean, generally when I say that, it's because it seems like it would be really fun to do. It's not because, you know, 
I'm stoked on the residuals I think I'll be able to make <laughs> off of there. <laughs> I mean, you basically, you know, get paid for your time and that's it. You're not like oh, yeah. striking up deals for points on the back end or anything like no, that. No, and I don't do, I've never done a spec job, you know, where I do it for free, but you pay me if X, Y, Z happens. It's not to say I don't do work for free for friends and stuff occasionally, absolutely. Uh, but I know that there are some guys who do pop music, especially, I think, who do a lot of that spec kind of thing, uh, even at like kind of underground indie levels. I've never done that. Uh, I get paid a day rate. Um, I'll do half days thinking about changing it to hourly for some things, but I don't want to feel like a, you know, a, a plumber or something where we're looking at the clock the whole time. So usually I do half days or days and I try to give clients if they, I mean, the music that I work on budgets are super, super sensitive. Lots of like sort of underground heavy bands. It's just the idea of spending a thousand dollars to make a record is a big deal. You know, you need to give pretty concrete estimates up front and, I try and be super honest with that. If I say this is how much it's going to cost, we are going to come in at that. The flip side of that is I think, you know, it's not a very fun process to really suss that out. I do like software estimation all the time for my day job. So I feel pretty good about my estimating skills. But I, I don't know that it's the process that other engineers go through when these guys are hitting up other people to see how much it's going to cost. I, I, I think most of the time when people record, like the guy says, oh, it's this much a day. And then only later they realize that they took nine days to do a record that they they sort of in their head thought would be four days and they're out, you know, two and a half times the money they thought they would be or whatever. With me, that never happens, ever. But up front, that may make it less attractive because you look at this number. Well, maybe, so are you telling me you're, do you just try to be brutally honest about it? And Yeah, I mean, I think it's the software person in me. Like, I, I just want, I know I would want real numbers from people and to look back later and be like, yep, this guy did exactly what he said he was going to do. Uh, you know, sometimes it's like, hey, man, this took longer than we thought it was going to take. But, I, you know, I want to tell people about that as it's happening, not as a surprise. I get clients all the time who, hey, so it'll just take a few extra minutes, but we're going to do a little, uh, we're going to cram like a few extra things in. Hey, we decided to do an extra song this weekend. Is that cool? Yeah. Yeah, we just wrote this new song. We got to get it on there. And then it becomes like, you know. It'll be super easy. Oh, yeah. We'll do, it'll take like five it's, minutes. Yeah, it's easy. Yeah. It's like, the, it's our easiest song. Uh-huh. We, yeah, we, we can, we can nail it really quick. Yeah. I, I don't know about you, but I always tell people, this is going to take much longer than you think it's going to take. So I, I always, I always pat it by that. They may think they can do it in, you know, two days. Oh, yeah. We'll come right in and we'll just bang it out. I'm like, well. There's a lot of real-time listening and decision-making and, and debating that happens that is always unaccounted for. That's right. So I always say, if you think it's going to take two days, I think it's going to take four. I try, I, you know, especially with a lot of the kind of music I do, it's reasonably predictable the way sessions are going to go. So I feel like I can do pretty good estimates of how long things will take. And occasionally we'll have this discussion up front. The way that I like to think about it is how much time will you get per song? Like we're going to do, let's say you guys want to do five songs. You want to book two days. I think you should book four, but you want to book two. Well, uh, two 10 hour days, right? You know, subtract three or four hours for setup and tear down, maybe five. Maybe we want to have lunch one day. I don't know. Maybe right? we want to eat. Yeah. Like maybe we want to eat. So we'll subtract an hour or two, like an hour for that. Maybe, you know, maybe I'll be sitting at the console eating, but, you know, maybe you'll go eat. 
So then we're down to 14 hours. So now we've got 14 hours for, you know, let's say, I don't know, seven songs, right? Uh, then we've got two hours per song. So that's that's total, right? That's playing it three or four times, listening to every one of those takes. Maybe we need to do a few edits. You know, do you want to overdub your guitars or are you doing them live? Like two hours is not much when you think about it that way. And that's the way I've started trying to break that stuff down for people to understand. What I've often found is that, you know, the saying that no battle plan survives its first contact with the enemy or whatever. You know, in reality, you can do all that stuff up front, but yes, it, you get into the session and it's like, man, I really just want to try setting the drums for this one song up out in the parking lot, or this one song turns out to be much harder to play or whatever. Or yeah, we want to do one more song because we got an offer for a split. We've got a song kind of written. Let's do that. That situation I find much harder to manage because it's really important to me that the band, the artist is the boss. Like I'm not on a power trip in a session. I'm here to work for you and with you and make an awesome record. At the same time, I don't want to let you shoot yourself in the foot, right? Like, hey, man, we got two days here. And yes, you can do this song, but here's the implications of that. Like, it seems like you have enough time now. But tomorrow night, it's going to be midnight. We're going to hate each other. <laughs> and... You know, we're not going to be done with overdubs. We're going to be figuring out some plan. You guys are going to be looking at each other to see if you can come up with the money to do more stuff. So I'm going to go out and grab a coffee. You guys figure out if you really want to do this or not. You know, something like that. Uh, I don't know that I'm great at managing that kind of situation, but that's the way I try and do it is to say, like, look, I want you guys to understand the implications of the decision you're making, you know, a day or two from now, even though right now it seems like it'll be just fine. That's the way that I try and manage that stuff. There are other guys, Steve Albini, for instance, like we've had a little online back and forth about this. Uh, he's not like that at all, according to him, at least. You know, his style is like the band is the boss. Yeah. And, and if the band wants to spend all, their whole session, you know, trying different trash cans to put over the, the guitar amp and see which one's just right, and then we run out of time, like, that's cool. That's the band's. The band's in charge and it's their decision. And I, you know. With respect to, to, to Steve, I think that there's, there's honor in that. But I think that there's also honor in being up front and letting the band know our original discussion was this was your goal and you introducing this new element could sabotage that goal. Right, but you need to do it. The, the tricky, I mean, absolutely. But you need to do it in a way, I like the way you said it, like, well, I kind of like the way you said it, I guess. You, it, it's, it's Do you want to go back and reevaluate? <laughs> I hate the way you said that. That was awful. You know, staying positive and staying artist-centric and staying, you know, keeping things like, hey, we're doing good stuff and we're stoked on it. That's that's important. And I'm sure some friend of mine will hear me say, like, staying positive and laugh their ass off because that's not maybe my personality. But we are trying to make something awesome together in a session. And, you know... You, you need to be able to have that discussion without like just souring the room. That's the really hard part. Yeah. You yeah. know, like if there's one, there's always one person in the band who thinks this is a great idea and, and you don't want to engage on a debate with that person because in the session, because basically what you're saying, you know, psychologically, there's this thing that happens where it's like, well, if your idea is, is dumb, you're dumb and you don't want that to happen. You don't want, the, you know, so there's, it's got, you got to, 
figure out these ways to kind of present the implications and then let them make the decision. And then they're invested in the decision as well. And, and it's their session still. And I don't know that I'm great at that. And, and I don't know if I'm always great at, at this either, but to me, it's not, it's not really a question of is the idea good or not necessarily. I'm more thinking about what's the time implications. Here's, here's an analogy. Brendan and I were getting our, our kitchen redone. I was the guy that was there talking to the contractor and talking with everybody and came in one day and said, well, uh, my wife wants to do this, this idea. And they're like, okay, yeah, we could do that. We'll just have to write up a change order. Right. And I mean, you can't obviously, <laughs> I, can't, I can't imagine being on a session and having somebody say, yeah, we want to put, you know, like a Tom overdub on this song. That's cool. I'll just have to write up a change order. <laughs> but, but, but the net effect, all that shit adds up, right? That is exactly the thing. And you don't know until you're like, it's our last day. It's 3 p.m. And look where we're at. I'm a technician at heart, mm -hmm. right? I'm, I'm a, I do engineering type stuff during the day as my day job. I'm sort of a technical, mildly technical, at least recording engineer. It comes pretty naturally to me to think in this very quantitative, you know, analytical way. Some people who are more pure artist than that, that's not the way they think. They tune out when you say that stuff. And that's cool. Those people can make awesome music. Those people can make much better music than I can. I think that they're wired in a different way. So communicating that stuff with them. I mean, sometimes it's like, hey, all right, we'll just, I just need to throw my hands up and say, this is going to be a little bit of a clusterfuck and here we go. You know, this is actually one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you because I, I perceive you as that kind of a person. I may be more technical than some percentage of the people who are making records on a daily basis, but I don't think I'm the most technical person in the world. The, the place to me where that ends up being a challenge, I think actually is discussing recording with other engineers hmm. because I really want to know beyond just like I had this empirical experience where like I used this EQ and the record came out great. Like that's not enough for me to say that's a great EQ. You know, we're friends online. I'm sure you see me grapple with this, trying to chase down the, the mythology and the marketing speak and the sort of like gigantic group think that happens in audio. Yes. Uh, yeah. You know, versus what you really know for real reasons, or does it matter? You know, that is an ongoing challenge for me. Because you're seeking answers or because you don't suffer fools? I don't know. I Yes, because it's hard to separate mythology from reality and mythology becomes embedded in these weird ways where it becomes like an assumed reality in audio. I can, I can think of a couple examples. One is summing, mm -hmm. right? Here, my feeling on summing, and I am the first to say that I'm not the authority on this stuff, but is two things happened, I think, 15 or whatever years ago. People were mixing more and more in the box, but they were still using techniques that they learned working with tape and sure. analog. So naturally, all their shit was going to be way too brittle and way too bright because <laughs> the high end isn't going to disappear. And the other thing is that people were working with Pro Tools before 8 or whatever, mm -hmm. where their mix bus was using small enough word lengths 
that if you ran really hot signals into it, it started sounding worse. Mm -hmm. And then they said, oh, digital sucks. Digital summing sucks. Well, what they're really saying is that Pro Tools 7 summing sucks, right? If you mixed in Cubase, you didn't experience that. Cubase had a very high bit depth mix bus all along. Uh, I think if you mix in Logic, you didn't experience that. But, you know, a bunch of pros, digital was Pro Tools. They experienced this. They, they ran super hot levels in their mix bus. It sounded worse. They said digital is lousy. People invented, like, let's try analog summing. These problems went away, but not for the reason they thought they did. And suddenly analog summing became magic and important. And now there's a million analog summing boxes on the market. That's right. And of course, you know, companies who make a living selling music equipment are going to, you know, yeah, we can make a $4,000 summing box. We can put really expensive pots on it. We can do a milled faceplate and all this shit. Sure. Pro Tools 8 or 9 or whatever it was, they fixed that, right? Yeah. Like they, they redid their mix bus architecture. You can run your signals as hot as you want now. You know, you can run your individual tracks as hot as you want. You're never going to run out of digital headroom. It's fine. Nevertheless, the myth goes on and on and on. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, hey, look, I bought a console to mix through. Like, I buy into this to some degree. Like, I'm, it's very hard to know for sure what's what. I give you props for at least going down this path to seek answers so that you can say, I know from my experience, this is... You know, the console works this way, the in-the-box thing works this way. and Right. That's great. However, the advice you take, the people you talk to, and the things you listen to to decide which paths you want to try, mm -hmm. even teasing that apart is hard because of this embedded mythology thing. Uh, you know, one that I always sort of can't get enough of is microphone preamplifiers, right? Right. I mean, you can't find an internet thread without people asking what preamp someone used on a record. Who fucking cares what preamps you used on a record? It doesn't matter, right? Like, I would much rather know what guitar picks you used than what preamps you used. I genuinely think that would affect the sound of things more in most cases. I mean, there may be a couple of super crunchy, like, dirty ones, or you know, whatever, okay. But, you know, people walk into Shark Bite, there's a 1978 Trident full of, like, old Transformers and all this stuff. It's got tons of... It's got mojo for days. And they're like, so what outboard pre's do you have? And it's like, well, I know it's funny too. What the too. fuck are you talking about, man? I never use the outboard pre's there. Why would you? I don't, you know. It's because ergonomically, it it's nice for me to sit at the board. I can turn everything here and EQ everything here. And everything's within my grasp to control what's going on. That's why I don't use the up, the upward mic. That's right. And and the and the 10 minutes you'll spend patching up a mic pre and reaching back for it and stuff or 10 minutes you could change a mic or go change settings on a guitar amp or do another take or anything that will actually really affect the final output. But there's everyone talking about mic pre's on the internet like they're the be all like they're going to up your game. Right. And you can sort of like trace that back to, you know, Rec Audio Pro or something also back in the early 2000s. And now everyone's got, you know, racks full of incredibly expensive mic pre's. Mm -hmm. You know, again, this is the, this is just the, the sort of audio mythology thing has always been a challenge for me because I feel like you you need to be a real good critical thinker about this stuff to decide what really matters or not. That's me. There are lots of people who are much more artsy, uh, who have much more of an artistic mind, mm -hmm. and 
I'm always jealous of those people. Like they're not so robotic, you know, it's just like, I don't know, man, it sounded awesome. That's what I did. Like when I talk to those people, it's sort of funny because like, I've got to have everything, you know, quantified and I need like a white paper to explain it and stuff. And they're like, I don't fucking know. It sounded good. And their records are probably better than mine. Well, but, but then there's there are those guys out there that, I mean, like if you talk to Joe Ciccarelli, I mean, Joe can hear and tell you like the subtle differences between the variations and all the 1176s out there. I can't do that. Number one, I don't have the experience with all of the flavors to the point of, I'm sure I've heard all the flavors, but I don't have the experience to tell you, oh, this one sounds like this. It's like wine. Is it red? Yeah, great. I'm on board. Yeah, there, uh, I've I've heard the the coffee metaphor too for that. That you know, coffee tastes fine until you've had good coffee for a few months, and then you go back and you say, "Oh, now I can taste the difference with this." That might be true. You know, I, I I'm perfectly willing to say that I always, maybe to a fault, willing to say that man, I'm not Joe Ciccarelli, right? I'm not Steve Albini. I'm not any of these guys at the same time i've tried to this is hilarious but i feel like i've got like body image issues or something about audio at this point reminding myself over and over that i'm not those guys because no you know i haven't done any white stripes records you know no i like i haven't done any huge big boy records right but i've made a lot of records i've spent you know a good part of my adult life thinking constantly about audio and so, you know, I don't know. I try not to feel bad about this stuff. Like, you know, no, I, I can't tell you the difference between a dozen 1176s either, but. And I, and I certainly would not, you know, take credit away from, from any of any of these guys. Um, but do you think that along the, this, this discussion, uh, this line of thinking of groupthink and mythology, do you think that when you end up appearing on a big boy record, big girl record, uh, Maybe it wins a Grammy. Maybe it gets nominated. Do you think that that elevates you naturally to mythological status, whether you're good or not? Uh, I do think, you know, like you said, you didn't want to take anything away from those guys. I mean, it is a different world to spend three months or six months or whatever working on a Red Hot Chili Peppers record. Yeah. You know, right? It is. uh, It's a different world in all kinds of ways that someone like me, you know, I, I don't have A&R people stopping by to see how a record's going. I don't rent lockouts in rooms for four months and, and have the drum doctor come in with five different drum kits and have a t- drum tech there all day. It's, it's all can be at least such a different world that, I, you know, I, <laughs> it, it's hard to even compare what I do to what someone like that does. And, you know, for them personally... I don't spend 10 hours a day, 320 days a year, you know, tracking or listening to playback. I've spent a lot of time doing that stuff, but it's still, you know, like it's probably 20% of that. Right? Okay. Okay. And, and I really do feel that audio is when I interviewed Andrew Schneider for tape op years ago, he said something that really stuck with me. He said, mixing is a muscle and, uh, and it, and it can weaken very quickly. And I think that's very, very true. And so the type of person who is eight or 10 hours a day, every day of the year, you know, super focused on audio, I do believe that those people can hear things 
that I can't. They're they're tuned into all kinds of subtleties that I'm not. My friend Kurt Palou, great example, right? He makes, I don't even know how many records he makes a year in the same room, you know, with his own gear. I mean, that dude, I cannot imagine being as dialed as he is. That's not me. And that's okay too. I mean, I, you know, the the good part is that there's no pressure on a record that I make that it sound like a Red Hot Chili Peppers record or, you know, whatever huge glossy, you know, they just have to sound rad. They just, you just have to make the client happy. Well, and they, and they just have to sound rad in this certain way that they, they don't need to be, the, I love this phrase, they don't need to be weapons grade productions. <laughs> uh, and that's cool. That's actually like... Military spec. That's actually great. Like, you know, they can be really cool sounding and have lots of character and... Uh, Flaws. Yeah, and that's fine. I, I have an appreciation for just your perspective of just seeking out and trying to break apart the myths and trying to figure out stuff on your own. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, like, let's say you're like, you're trying to do new drum stuff and you go watch a few videos or you read a few articles or posts or whatever that Eric Valentine put on the internet. Right. Eric Valentine, as far as I can tell, is a totally incredible engineer and is like a mad genius with drum sounds. It's easy to think, oh man, if I do this and this and this that he talked about, I can do that stuff. And I do plenty of comparing up. You know, like thinking, why can't I be like these guys? Uh, but at the same time, man, I, I'm trying not to do that so much these days because it's just a way to feel awful and not play your own game. You know, like what you want to do is you want to work on what sounds great for you and how to get there and play your own game. I don't think I'm saying anything that makes sense. No, no, you are <laughs> saying it. Actually, it's just making me realize, you know, it's like when we see people higher up uh, on in, in any industry – you know, whether it's uh, somebody looking at a fashion magazine and looking at a model and, you know, how come I don't look like that? Or how come I don't dress like that? Or how come I'm not this rich or, uh, or drive this car? I think it's a fairly common thing across many different worlds, and especially in our world. When I used to do teaching over at Pyramid, I always told the students, look, as far as audio is concerned, it's just like politics. There's people on all sides of the aisle with, you know, extreme views on this side, extreme views on that side, centrists. And you just find the place that you're most comfortable working and and do it, you know. If you want to, you know, work in absolutes and say that digital sucks, well, okay. Right on, yeah, totally. Own it, do it. And if you want to be a Pro Tools guru, great. Go do it. Own it. Let's talk about some mistakes. Oh. Yeah. I know. Oh, really? Oh. So many mistakes. <laughs> so, so little time. It's like writing my own autobiography. Yeah. One thing that sticks with me is, and it's funny, even though I've learned this lesson, I still haven't learned this lesson, is uh, if you can hear something during basics, if it's jumping out at you, you should never say it'll be all right because it won't be all right. I mean, I can list, you know, I can remember sp specifics of, oh, there was this weird snare rattle that we were hearing and, you know, and I said on this one record, and I said, oh, well, you know, we'll be able to deal with that later. That's no big deal. It's probably just more in the room than in the mics. Oh, fuck. You know, <laughs> <laughs> total nightmare. Or like, oh, there's a, I'm hearing like a weird ring on this guitar amp, but I'm sure we'll be able to notch it out or whatever. It's a microphonic tube, something like that. 
nightmare. Ryan from Sharkbot, I was uh, engineering his band recording. Is this the one that you did with Kevin Army? Yes. Oh. Uh, with Kevin producing. And we were doing like we had the whole band in the live room together. We were embracing the bleed. We were, you know, doing all the things people say they do but don't actually do. And the kick drum pedal was pretty squeaky. I was like, ah, man, you're not going to hear that when everything's going. Guess what? <laughs> you know, so so like the, <laughs> if you can hear it, if it's jumping out at you, it's I have to remind myself because I'm so focused on like, let's get doing takes. Let's keep product. Let's stay productive. I don't want to grind the session to a halt while I go troubleshoot this weird thing. But, you know, and I don't want sessions to be engineer centric. I want them to be band centric. But every once in a while, track that stuff down. Here's an interesting one. Well, depending on one's definition of the word interesting. I mixed a record for a friend's band called Yowie. And those guys are insane. Like they play, their music is super experimental, like noisy kind of Midwest insanity. And you'd think if you heard it for 30 seconds, you might say, oh, this sounds improvised like kind of a freeish jazz thing, but it's not. It is very, very, very tightly composed. And it's just insane. Like, I, I can't describe it. It sounds like, although he's not, it sounds like one of the guys is playing a fretless guitar and it's as many like sort of guitar manipulations and noises as it is parts. Hmm. It's nuts. So I mixed their record and it was fun and cool, but midway through, so one of the, one of the things about music like that is that the only people probably who are going to make music like that is insane people. We started getting into the details of the mix revisions and they were insane. They were like, you know, I would get like a two page email that was like from 22 seconds to 24 seconds, the left guitar needs to come up from 25 seconds to 26 seconds. The snare drum needs to come up. And, you know, I'm used to doing, rock music where I, in situations like that for most music, I'll say like, Hey man, you just need to like put this on in your car, drive around and listen to it loud and see how you feel about it. Like, don't worry about if the hi-hat's too loud on that one fill or whatever, like none of that shit matters. You know, what really matters is the big picture. And so I instinctively fell into that position with this artist, you know, where I was like, I can do this, but you know, you're way in the weeds here, dude. Like, I, I want to pull you out. Like, I want to help you and let's get this done. And, and I realized later two things. One is that I think Sean, the drummer in that band, just liked the process. Like, that was part of it for him, was doing that. And two, in this particular type of music, that stuff did matter to them a lot. They're not making music for other people. They're making it 100% for themselves. And it, they need it to be just so. Hmm. It would have been a hard thing for me to realize at first. But, you know, I should have, as my friend Greg's li Greg likes to put it, uh, just made the donuts. You know, you just take the list and you go through the list and you do it. And, you know, right on, I'll do that. And instead of, you know, like sort of engaging in this battle of should we be doing this type of thing or not because they were going to want to do this thing regardless of what i said you're not going to change how they make records or want to make records I, I don't know yeah sometimes that again it's like i'm trying to help them not shoot themselves in the foot not spend more money not 
have to do more revisions and also kind of like for me it's like oh my god this is crazy but they don't care about that stuff they don't want to be protected from doing that as it turns out and i probably put too much effort and and put myself into too much of a negative mindset you know, like i'd get the email and i'd open it and be like, oh my fucking god like <laughs> i didn't i didn't need to be like that you know and towards the end i realized that and you know the the record came out awesome like it's it's rad and I've never worked on anything like it and all, you know. I will say, though, it is a challenge when you you work really hard to put together a mix for a band. And then you open up that email of revisions and you're like, are you kidding me? Really? It makes me start to second guess all the decisions I made. And I start to, you know, look in, inward and go, why didn't I catch this stuff? And at the same time, why are these guys being so damn picky? And, and so I go back and forth. I've tried to get more sane about that in the last year or two uh, and just realize that's the process. If you embrace that up front, you have less of that what the fuck issue that you're describing. And so now I say that to bands. I say, it's okay for you to give me revisions. It's okay for you to give your mastering engineer revisions. Like people don't realize that. They think they just get a master back and that's it. approve it and that's it. No, you know, some MEs are doing all kinds of stuff or miss things. Their throughput is very high these days. Totally cool for you to be like, hey, you know, I want to try this again or this isn't working. And I used to feel bad about doing that to mastering engineers, and now I don't anymore. I just feel like, hey, this is the process. And I strongly believe that the end result in general improves because of it. So I've tried to embrace that process. I mean, I know what you're saying. There are definitely those times where, like, you're like, well, I did, I did E- because of complicated decisions like involving B, C, D, and A, and you just care about E, but it's going to kind of like my house of cards is going to tumble down here. Yeah. Oh, that guitar you put on the left and everything is symmetrical. Yeah, we're not, that guitar wasn't supposed to be used. Oh. Right. <laughs> well, why was it in there? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a whole list of complications and, and, and thoughts that really just frustrate me sometimes. But I don't know how it is for you, but it's, I, I really try to balance my my disappointment sometimes in those situations and try to be like, okay, this is their thing. I got it. You know, I'm the guy that they're hiring and I got to make it right for them. And yeah, absolutely. And, and you have to, as Vance said in his podcast, you got to turn that frown upside down. You know, you just really got to like get on the right attitude to get it done. Otherwise it's not going to make it out. And you're going to get into stupid debates that don't need, you know, debates that don't even need to be had. That's right. And 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 just because you're kind of, you know, butthurt about someone saying something about what you did doesn't mean that they're not right. You know, even if you know, they're like, oh, the kick drum needs to be 10 times louder. And you're like, oh, my God, who who would do that? I can't do that. Well, they would do that, you know, and it's their record. There are times where I'll say, hey, are you sure you want to do that? Like that's you're doing a kind of a crazy thing here. But. I don't know. I, I think your description of Vance's approach to that is is right. You just you're trying to make a record that this person is going to be proud of for their own reasons, and you're not them. Yeah, exactly. And we all like different stuff. Um, something that I forgot to ask you: when you mix, like how? What's your what's your business arrangement? How do you structure the money? Do you charge per mix or per day? Uh, I I charge per day. Okay. Is the short answer. Uh, what you get done in that day is... And, and a day equates to eight or 10 hours of work. Okay. Because for me, you know, I may do that over the course of three physical days. 
but I'll keep track of my hours. You know, I have like, I just keep a text file that I type in like, oh, Thursday, January 2nd, I spent four hours, you know, getting this mix going and then, you know, working. So I keep, you know, sort of good track of my time. The money thing is always a challenge. I do a lot of work for friends. I don't want them to feel like I'm like bilking them. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I also don't want to just be paying for this room and all the gear as a charity. Right. I guess to my friends who could help me support it. Right. Because, I mean, you had the agreement with your wife. You're not going to lose money on it. Yeah. It's an agreement to myself, really, that, you know, I mean, if, if in fact I can't generate enough business to keep this thing afloat, the thing might not need to be here. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> if there's not enough demand, is this just a man cave? Yeah. Yeah. I don't want a man cave. Any other mistakes? I think a big mistake for me going back 15 years, I had a house that I rented when I lived in Virginia on the East coast that I had a pretty okay studio built into, you know, it was like sort of early tape op. Awesome. If that makes sense. Okay. And I spent a lot of time, you know, on my own projects there and on friends' projects. And this is still when studios were kind of like a rarity, I guess. And just trying to like lure people in that I knew a little bit to do sessions and stuff, thinking that, you know, just having like a studio with someone who knew what they were doing would be enough of a reason for people to come there. And it's only years later through the benefit of hindsight that I realized that's not the reasons that people come to independent recording studios. And what I should have been doing is I should have been playing in more bands that were playing more shows that were doing more touring. I should have just been out meeting a lot more people through, you know, live music and being in a band instead of being holed up at home, you know, holed up in a studio working on projects and just waiting for, clients to show up at the front door. And I think, I think that's my biggest long-term mistake when it comes to Hmm. audio and studios that, you know, had ripple effects through the rest of my life. I, I didn't take enough risks as far as, you know, playing and touring early on. And I just spent more time thinking that the studio was what mattered and less time thinking that realizing how important the community was. This is a little bit of what John Cunaberti talked about in his interview, and I'm paraphrasing, but essentially, it's good to get out, go interact, meet people, see bands, listen to music, you know, network a, a bit. Well, it ruins it all when you call it networking. I know, I know. <clears throat> but That is what it is but I, in the end, but I love going to shows. I don't get to do it as often as I used to because I have kids and I spend, you know, every waking hour here yeah. keeping this thing going yeah. or, you know, doing stuff with my band, but I love going to see shows. You know, every time our band gets out and does the little bit of touring that we get to do, it is awesome. You know, we meet tons of great people. It's just great. If people want to be holed up at home and it's too much work for them to go to a show, I, it's, uh, you don't have any sympathy for that. Well, it's kind of a weird, it's a <laughs> sort of a weird dichotomy with being a recording engineer. Well, yeah. You know. Yeah. And I'm not saying that, you know, I don't, I don't like it, but I've gone through a lot of phases over my time. Like when I first moved to San Francisco, one of my first jobs was working at the Fillmore and I saw so many shows yeah. that would like, I can't, I've forgotten most of them. I've seen so many of them. Well, definitely one of the weird things about being in a place like the Bay Area is that, you know, you're spoiled, right? Like every single amazing tour comes through 
you know, like any night of the week, you could go see something incredible. And so it so starts to seem normal. Yep. But, you know, but, you know, it's not really normal. <laughs> but when you get, but yeah, I, maybe it's, maybe it's a factor of having kids. Cause I think sometimes I'm like, oh, I'm going to put the kids to bed and, you know, do I have the energy to just want to catch up with my stories? You know, I'll watch a little Game of Thrones and then. <laughs> I've never even seen Game of Thrones, so. I, is that a, that's a show, right? It is. It is a show. Okay. It is a very popular show, apparently, that I have, I have, I'm culturally kind of behind the curve on that. If you lost your day job, what would you do? I would get another day job. Okay. You wouldn't shift and try to make this a permanent thing? No. Or... When I opened this room, uh, my wife and I talked about that a little bit because, you know, I went from not having a dedicated space to having one and the the dream of having, you know, of doing recording full time, which, you know, is a long time dream of mine, you know, just became a little more or a little less blurry, a little more in focus. And we talked about it a little bit. And, you know, when you start running the numbers and saying, man, this is how much it costs for us to live here. Here's how much I would need to be booked. Here's the number of days I would, you know, like, let's say you're charging, I don't know, pick a number. I'm charging $400 a day. Here's how many days a year I would need to be booked to pay my studio rent, which you got to keep paying, pay for gear, uh, pay for your living situation, rent, mortgage, whatever, pay for your kids to eat food, which they seem to keep doing. Like, here's the number of, like, wow, that's a big number. So let's say, you know, you look at that and you go, I would need to be booked about 320 days a year. So that's uh, divide by 12. Wow, that's three and a half weeks of sessions every month. That's a lot of bookings. If you're honest with yourself, you say, well, if I put all of my time in, you know, if it was my full-time job to do this and to try and generate more bookings, and could I do that? The truth is, I no, I don't think I could. I mean, maybe if I did it full-time for 10 years and did a couple really awesome records along the way, got lucky, uh, you know, who knows, maybe, but that's very hard. I have a few friends who are able to do that. I have a lot of friends who don't do that. That's the reality, I think. So if you lost the job, you would go get another day I would, gig? I would definitely go get another day gig, yes. Yeah, because uh, that gig helps fund this gig. Recording funds itself now. That's the, that's the deal, right? But th that makes this possible is a better way to put it. Okay. Does that make sense? It does make sense. Because you're not funneling a bunch of money from your your day gig into this you're or you're trying to avoid that i'm i'm not <clears throat> this is a self-sufficient operation that's the idea but this doesn't have to support what the day gig supports that's right and that's good in two ways one is uh it's literally impossible for it to do that so you know if you're a child who depends on eating it's good that you know <laughs> that i'm not trying to do it through a non-viable mechanism. But the other thing is that, of course, like we said, you know, you get to love what you do. Uh -huh. And I think if you're desperately trying to, you take anything that comes through the door, you take any paying gig that comes by, uh, it'll change your relationship with the work. I, I can definitely attest to that, having tried my hand at studio ownership. Right. I'm sure you had a bunch of walk-ins that were a bummer to work on. Totally. Oh yeah, had a great load of that. But uh, and you sit there and you go, "I, I'm better than this. Why am I doing this?" <laughs> well, because you got to pay the rent. Yeah, you're laying in the bed you made. 
here we are. It's Tuesday morning and we're here. Did you call in sick today? Oh man, now I'm in trouble. No. <laughs> uh, one of the cool things about software jobs is that they do afford more flexibility than lots of other jobs. If I worked in a warehouse or something, you know, like an hourly thing like that, it's not the kind of thing where I would be able to go take time off uh, as readily. Here I can say, hey, I got a thing for two hours. I'll work late tonight and make up for it. You know, everyone's cool with that. It's okay. Our vacation time is also sort of malleable. And so if I have a session that's going to be Friday through Monday, I can take two days off. I, I haven't pushed that super hard. Uh, if I got super busy, I have a pretty good relationship with my boss. And it may be the kind of thing where if I had just used up as much vacation as the company was willing to give me, I could take some time without pay. Mm -hmm. uh, can you work from anywhere because of the nature of your job? Yeah, I can. Uh, it, as it happens right now, I'm on a team that's based in Seattle. So most of the people with whom I work are not local to me. So I don't really have to be in an office or not. Uh, Unfortunately, you're on the same time zone. That's right. I go to Seattle to work with them as often as I can swing it. But yes, it means that I could, I can sit here and work. Or Before we wrap up, so anti-sleep audio, as far as like a business entity, do you just run as a sole proprietor or do you keep anti-sleep audio? Like, is that a separate bank account? And is did you set up a, anything special about that? No, not right now. Uh, it's been in the back of my mind to do that. Tax-wise, I'm a sole proprietor right now. It's not an LLC or anything. There's good reasons to not do what I'm doing. Honestly, the truth is that I've just been, I've got no free time left to spend on that stuff. Okay. Uh, so I just have let it run the way it's been. The guy that has, has done my taxes the last couple of years, he just factors them all together and it works out okay, I guess. But, you know, I think I'm lacking some protections that I would have mm -hmm. uh, if it was a separate entity. Well, cool, man. I appreciate you uh, taking time today to to speak with me about this. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a little daunting given the list of names that you dropped that you've done otherwise. But, but, it's, uh, but it is a mixture of, of known and unknown people, you uh, know, all doing incredible work, uh, some more high profile than others. On, right. on no, I mean, I understand. But still, it's sort of like you hear those names. And you're like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. All right, there you have it, Scott Evans. Glad to have Scott on, and uh, make sure you go over to antisleep.com and check out Scott's blog and check out what he's up to. Hey, thanks again for tuning in to the Working Class Audio Podcast. We'll see you in a couple weeks. As usual, tell everybody about the podcast and let them know what you think. Hopefully you think positively about the podcast. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.